So our gospel lesson this morning does come from the book of John, chapter 15, verses 1 through 17. I am the true vine, and my father is the vineyard keeper. He removes any of my branches that don't produce fruit, and he trims any branch that produces fruit, so that it will produce even more fruit. You are already trimmed because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. A branch can't produce fruit by itself, but must remain in the vine. Likewise, you can't produce fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, then you will produce much fruit. Without me, you can't do anything. If you don't remain in me, you'll be like a branch that is thrown out and dries up. Those branches are gathered up, thrown into a fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask for whatever you want and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified when you produce much fruit and in this way prove that you are my disciples. As the Father loved me, I too have loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love just as I kept my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I have said these things to you so that my joy will be in you and your joy will be complete. This is my commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. No one has greater love than to give up one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I don't call you servants any longer because servants don't know what their master is doing. Instead, I call you friends because everything I heard from my father I have made known to you. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you could go and produce fruit and so that your fruit could last. As a result, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. I give you these commandments so that you can love each other. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be God. You may be seated. Good morning. If anybody out there is wondering, what's he doing up there? He, you're in good company, because I'm kind of wondering that myself this morning. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for your presence. You promised that where two or three are gathered in your name, that you are there in the midst of them. There's a lot more than two or three here this morning. And so we trust that you keep your word and that you will be in our presence. We invite you to walk among us this morning, God. That we wouldn't just come together to hear a few words and look at a few slides, but that we would encounter your living presence and be changed by it. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. In uh, 2006, there was an engineer at Toyota that was found suddenly to have passed away. His daughter went into his room one morning and found that her father had died of cardiac arrest. And um, the family was dumbfounded by what had happened. They were surprised that someone so young and someone that was in seemingly good health could die so suddenly, especially of cardiac arrest. 
And so they waited for the coroner's report to come back, and when the coroner's report came back, they discovered that the diagnosis was that he had died of stress. But not just any stress. He had died from a particular kind of stress, the stress that comes from work, from overworking. And so it's important to understand how this could have happened by looking at a little bit of history. In post-World War II Japan, the uh, United States, among several European nations, were worried about what was happening in Asia. And they considered the fact that Japan might be vulnerable to the communist forces that were sweeping the region. So they felt that helping Japan get back on its feet economically and be stable once again economically was important. And so productivity was placed at a high premium in Japan. The years between World War II and the end of the Cold War in the early 90s were the highest years of productivity of any nation ever in history. It's never been matched. Not before and not since then. In fact, they had a, a word for this period of time. It's called the Japanese economic miracle. And most of us have been a part of that. We've seen Japanese products enter into our homes over the past 50 years or so. And cars, their cars are known as some of the best in the world. But it didn't happen without a cost. By the 1980s, there were a number of people who were dying directly or indirectly from the effects of overworking. It was occurring at such an alarming rate that they coined a term to describe it. Kuroshi. Kuroshi is the term for overwork death in Japan. The effects have been so pervasive that in the past couple of decades, the government has instituted a number, I think we're missing my slide, let me, I'm going to wait for the slide to catch up for a minute here. One more. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, by the way, these, these guys are not dead. They are asleep in the subway, which is one of the, what they call the seven signs of uh, risk of Kuroshi happening, that uh, you're falling asleep uh, in just random places because you're that exhausted. Um, <clears throat> and so, uh, the government has placed in the past couple decades some things in place to encourage companies not to overwork their employees. They've had to curb this impulse. Our own culture has not been exempt. In fact, many of the um, principles that were put in place in Japan, they learned from us. We brought them to Japan. Many of the strategies they used were ones that we taught them. We pride ourselves in this country on productivity, on results, on the bottom line. We say things like, we do more before uh, 9 a.m. than most people do all day. Or how about this one? Just do it. We have, uh, it's in the air that we breathe in our culture. Do it all, have it all, bigger, better, faster, more. If you feel the effects of stress on your life, you're not alone. It's estimated that 43% of health problems in the U.S., are directly related to stress. And 70% of US workers say that they are in poor health because of the stress on their lives. A recent British study found that on average, families spend 34 minutes every day together 
in undistracted time. That means time where they're just focused on one another. And believe it or not, they've studied this idea of multitasking. It's a virtue of our age, right? And they found that with multitasking, productivity actually decreases, not increases, by as much as 40%. And now we have these small devices, I have two of them, right, that uh, we can't escape. <clears throat> they are with us constantly. We're constantly plugged in. We can have our work and our distractions with us 24-7, multitasking to our heart's content. It's enough to make you say OMG and mean it, right? For those of you who don't text, that's oh my God. Um, the effects of stress are so palpable in our society that entire industries have, have sprung up in response to it. But believe it or not, on Labor Day weekend, I'm not here this morning to bash productivity. Productivity in and of itself is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. In fact, it's a commanded thing. From the very beginning, God created Adam and Eve in the garden, and he told them to be fruitful. The biblical term that is used for productivity is fruitfulness. But, like the strings on a violin, with just the right amount of stress, it can render something beautiful and awe-inspiring. But too much stress on these strings, and the strings will break. And so will the violin. Cut off from the thing that made it beautiful. Let's take a closer look at a few passages in the Bible where this principle is illustrated, especially the first one that I just mentioned. So in the garden, in Genesis 1 and 2, there's a, there are two accounts of creation, and God makes human beings and he says, be fruitful and multiply. He gives them stewardship over all of the earth and work to do. Work is a good thing. And then in Genesis 2, it says that after he created, created human beings on the sixth day, God rested from his labors on the seventh day. I think there's an interesting principle at work here that I overlooked many times when I read these passages. God makes human beings on the sixth day, and he tells them, be fruitful. And then the very first day of their existence, on the seventh day, God rests, and he commands them to do likewise. Their rest comes before their work. Their rest precedes their work. I believe that sequence is significant. I believe what God is telling us is that our work is to proceed from our rest, not our rest from our work. Let's look at God's top 10 list in Exodus 20, the 10 commandments. We all know those. God says, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. I think this idea of holiness is really important when we think about Sabbath rest. Holiness is something that is set apart for a particular purpose. It's to be used for no other thing so when you look at um, all, of this, uh, all of the rituals in Levitical law, you would see that they would have certain elements, for example, a bowl that was to only be used for a particular thing. 
It wasn't a bowl that you would have your kids eating their Cheerios out of on one morning, and then you would be using it for this other purpose. It was set aside for a particular thing. And so when God calls us to be holy, he calls us to be set apart for one particular thing. When he calls the day of rest a holy day, he calls us to set aside that day for one particular thing. We're, we're made to need rest. We're hardwired that way. In fact, the limbic system in our bodies will cleanse the impurities from the activity of our body in every area of our body except one, the human brain. The human brain only regenerates itself, only cleanses the impurities from all of the activity in our brain through sleep and rest. Let's look at a New Testament example of this principle. It's a familiar story. I'm going to read it to you because it's so short. Mary and Martha in Luke 10. While Jesus and his disciples were traveling, Jesus entered a village where a woman named Martha welcomed him as a guest. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his message. By contrast, Martha was preoccupied with getting everything ready for their meal. So Martha came and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to prepare the table all by myself? Tell her to help me. The Lord said, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. One thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the better part, and it won't be taken from her. The better part. Jesus calls the rest and sitting at his feet the better part. We can see a good example in these two sisters of rest and fruitfulness exemplified. What does it mean to rest in the Bible? It means that we take time to connect with the God who made us. It means that we cease from our activity and our distractions so that we can know our God and his deep love for us. When we rest, we connect with God in ways that restore his image to us the way he intended us to be. It's kind of like that memory foam. If you've ever been to a mattress store, or maybe some of you have that kind of bed, and you push down on it with your hand, and what happens? The imprint stays there. But over time, that imprint begins to fade, and it rises back to the surface, and it's flat again. Our lives can get flat like that if we don't come back into God's presence and allow him to press his imprint into us. Each of us is made with a God-shaped handprint on our lives, and we need that time in his presence. And so Jesus calls us, commands us to abide. When we look at John 15 in this context, we can see more clearly the life that God intends for us. Jesus draws a close connection in this passage between abiding, resting, and fruitfulness. In, in our ability to know God's love for us, in our ability to share God's love for us. 19 years ago, when our daughter Hannah was born, uh, we were living in a town called Georgetown, Texas. <clears throat> and we lived on a street called Pre Peachtree Lane. Uh, even though there were no peach trees anywhere to be found on our street, there was a large pear tree in our front yard. And this pear tree, once a year, would give off 
just a ton of pears. So many pears, they would be falling off, and we couldn't keep up with keeping them from spoiling. We'd give them to whoever would come and visit us or have dinner at our house. We would give them pears. Take some pears with you. And uh, we would collect them in baskets. Sometimes a limb on the tree would get so laden with pears that it would break from the weight and fall on the ground. I found a strange irony in this when it happened that these branches that bore so much fruit eventually broke off and separated themselves from the very thing that nourished them into being. You could say that those pear branches were karoshi branches. How often in my own life <clears throat> have I felt like that pear tree that was in our yard? Over eight years ago, after the death of one of my best friends, I began to re-examine my life and my priorities. And my observation, my discovery was that there was a growing disparity in my soul. That what I said was the most important thing, or the most important things, and how I spent my time and resources were very different. While I was enjoying success in my career in public education, I eventually came to a place where I was getting up in the morning before the kids got out of bed, and I was coming home in the evening after they had already gone to bed. Day after day, week after week, month after month. I was too tired most of the time to pray, and for the first time in my life, my church attendance was becoming sporadic. I didn't have the uh, emotional strength to give my family what they needed, and in fact, sometimes I would even react angrily when they asked for more of my time. So I began to contemplate this, this dilemma. What did God expect of me? What was I to do? I looked at John 15 for the answer. And what I found was that John 15 describes productivity or fruitfulness in a very different way than the world that I lived in, than the way that I had defined it. It speaks of a process more than a product. It speaks about how we go about our lives and less about an outcome. It speaks more of relationships than efficiency. And it emphasizes who we are being over what we do, doing. If you look at the second half of this passage, there's an interesting juxtaposition that Jesus talks about. Abide in me, abide in me, abide in me. Do you notice in both parts of the passage how many times he repeats this? It must be important. It must be important. It must be something he wants to sink into his disciples. And so, in the second part of this passage, in verses 9 through 17, there's a parallel passage, abide in me, so he, he talks about the fruit and the vine and the branches, and then he goes into your ability to love as you are loved by God, as you are loved by Jesus. He defines fruitfulness in a way that upset the apple cart for me. Fruitfulness is not efficiency, it's not success or achievement or any other related term. It's not bigger, better, faster, more. 
Fruitfulness is just simply the ability to love others as God has loved us. That's a hard love. Only God can love perfectly. And so without him teaching me how to love that way, I'm not very good at it. But it is a natural byproduct of our time with him. So Jesus invites us into this holy transformation to restore his image to us by being in his presence. This happens when we cease our normal activities and stop and listen and get away from our distractions, letting God make us into his image once again. It's a matter of being before doing. We need to become who God wants us to be before we go out into the world and do his will. This ensures that we don't do good things for the wrong reasons, that we don't do good for its own sake, or even for our own sake, but that we do that as a reflection of our relationship with him and as an act of worship to him. Recently, I read an article on how couples begin to look like one another over a long period of time. A group of scientists decided that they would study this phenomenon to see if there was anything to it. So at the University of Michigan, psychologist Robert Zajonik conducted an experiment to test this phenomenon. He looked at photographs of couples taken when they were first married and then 25 years or more later. The results showed that the couples had grown to look more and more like each other every year. Something I think was particularly interesting about this study is that they found that the happier the couple said they were, the more likely they were to look like one another. I guess if you have a grumpy spouse, you don't want to look like that, so you resist it. <clears throat> Zajonic suggested that the reason older couples look more like one another is because we have this trait as human beings when we have a conversation with another person that we mimic one another's gestures. We do this to make ourselves and the other person feel more comfortable. And so if you do this with the same person over a long period of time, it stands to reason that you begin to look a little bit like them. In fact, they actually found that the muscle structure underlying our faces changed in these couples. So that if your partner has a good sense of humor and likes to laugh a lot and has laugh lines, so will you. I will let you judge for yourselves the similarity of this couple. Hopefully, I look a little bit more like her than the other way around. I believe this study has a spiritual application in our lives, and when I saw this, I immediately thought about the connections with my own spiritual life, particularly my prayer life. That when I come to be away with Jesus in a place where I'm all alone with him and I look intently into his face and I spend time in his word and I know the depth of his love for me, that I'm changed by that experience a little bit every day until I find myself in a position where I grow in my capacity to love what I once found unlovable where I find myself with the capacity to forgive what was once unforgivable. I find myself, without trying, just becoming more like him for the time that I spend with him. The challenge in this, of course, is that 
this transformation that we so desire, so deeply desire, it happens on God's terms, not our terms. It stands to reason that when the perfect meets the imperfect, when the eternal meets the temporal, when the holy meets the sinful, that something has to give. And when it's God, that means we do the giving, when we do the changing. This is where we get stuck. We want what he has for us, how our hearts long for it, but we want it on our terms. We want a safe God, dare I say, a tame God. We want him to look more like us at the end of the process instead of us looking more like him. God insists on making us holy as he is holy. So we find ourselves at an impasse and we look for a way to have all of God and keep all of us. But he invites us to cease our striving It's like the man who goes to a source of water, like a well, and he takes water from that well, one ladleful at a time, and he dips, and he comes home, and he pours, and he dips, and he pours, constantly running back from the source to nourish himself. I think sometimes we're like that man. We go back and forth, dip and pour, one Sunday to the next, one day to the next. And then Jesus comes into our lives and he says, no more dipping and pouring. Stay, remain, abide in me. That's so hard to do to just sit still. We give up control. We give up our right to ourselves. And so... Jesus invites us to be filled with the Holy Spirit until we're overflowing. So instead of dipping and pouring and having just enough water for ourselves, when we abide in him and we stay in his presence and we remain in him constantly and we become planted in him, he fills us to overflowing until we begin to splash all over the lives around us. Why rest when there is work to be done? Why sit still? Why engage in anything beyond our control? It would seem to be a waste of time. But by that definition, by our definition, Jesus wasted a lot of time. The Bible says that he withdrew regularly from the crowds, from his disciples, from those closest to him to be with the Father in advance of the day that awaited him. It says that very early in the morning, while it was still dark, before the day began, he got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place. It doesn't say that he did this one time. It says he did this often. In fact, sometimes he so needed this time with the Father that he would go alone and spend the night on a mountainside praying to the Father. Jesus was fruitful. He worked hard. He was acquainted with success. But he was never, ever disconnected from the Father. 
If we're going to be faithful followers of Jesus, let us do as he did. Let us rest so that we can know our place in God. Let us spend time with him every day in quiet, in solitude, in silence. Kiroshi is a death by working. But this morning, Jesus invites us to another death, a better death. It's a difficult death, but it's a good death. It's worthwhile because it's a death without regret. It's a death without remorse. It's a death that doesn't involve the neglect of others. It's a death to ourselves that he might live in us. This morning, God invites us to be still, to be quiet, to be alone with him, hourly, weekly, daily, monthly, season by season, year to year. One of the things I love about our church is that they considered the process of following Jesus so important, what we call discipleship, that they decided to create a full-time position just for that. I'm honored every day to serve our church as the director of discipleship. I'm blessed to do the work involved in discipleship in our church. And I want you to know that long after this sermon is over, that I'm available to each of you on an individual basis to help you discover an ancient pathway that leads to rest and stays in God's presence, even in the midst of our labor. It's something I've spent a long time learning, and I love sharing with those who are wanting to walk on that same path. So today, I want to invite you to take a real Sabbath. Find some time today to take a Sabbath from your words from your busyness, from your hurry, from distraction, from fear. Imagine what would happen if we quieted ourselves and looked into the face of Jesus often enough. Over a long enough period of time, days, weeks, months, years, perhaps if we were truly alone with God, he would nudge us outside of our comfort zone. He might ask us to do the one hard thing that stands between us and him. Perhaps he'll ask us to do something God-sized. Perhaps forgive the unforgivable or love the unlovable. But mostly, he will whisper to us, I love you. I love you since before you knew me. <clears throat> I love you without height or depth. I love you without condition. I love you more than my very life. Abide in me. Know my love for you. And you will find the power to love others as I have loved you. And that will not only transform your own life, but it'll transform the entire world around you. 
abide in me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the quiet spaces in our world. We understand you've given those to us for a purpose. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to find more comfort and safety in the quietness and stillness than fear, than avoidance, than all the reasons why we sometimes don't press into those quiet places. Help us, God, to rest in you. Soften the hard places in our hearts that we might be your people and be a reflection of your love to the world around us. In Jesus' name, I pray.